Hello, I'm James Nurse, a paediatrician and the host of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. Every fortnight we release new episodes when I'm joined by authors to discuss recent papers from the journal so that they can share insights into their work and explain their findings. And since starting this almost a year ago, there's already an archive of over 20 episodes for you to listen to, so be sure to check them out. However, before you do that, here's the latest episode on galactosemia, an old diagnosis with some new ideas. So today I'm joined by Professor Judith Fridovich-Kyle, whose team at Emory University School of Medicine have done a huge amount of work on galactosemia over the last decade. Uh, alongside Professor Fridovich-Kyle is, uh, well, not yet doctor, but soon to be Dr. Jessica McWilliams. Um, good morning to both of you. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. Whilst our discussion today will concentrate on the two most recent papers you published in the journal, I think it's impossible to ignore some of your other work that helps really lay the foundation for these papers. I think our listeners will have a good understanding of the basics of galactosemia, but there's certainly variation in the approach that's taken around the world. This is something that you wrote a paper about, in fact, Judy, um, in 2012. And back then, I don't know if you were just trying not to be controversial, but you didn't conclude that there was any particular one best approach and we still see diet-independent consequences of the disease, regardless of the approach taken. Why is that? I wish I knew. <laughs> so so you're, you're correct that I was trying to um, not take sides, so to speak. And I, I should you know, clarify that I am not myself a clinician, so I'm not allowed to give clinical advice. But I do care an awful lot about galactosemia and, and the community. So clearly there are things going on that are diet independent. Most people say it has to do with endogenous production. Clearly there is galactose produced in every cell in your body that starts in utero. And we honestly do not understand at this point what the, what the mechanism is. And that's part of why the approach that we are now taking to intervention is to try to just basically give GALT back. Because if we can correct kind of all the metabolic problems, then we don't necessarily need to know which which metabolites are causing problems in, in which tissues. We have reason to believe that it's different in different tissues. And we truly don't understand the mechanism, but you're absolutely right that in, in every society I know of, whether they are strict with the diet, more lenient with the diet, whether they identify children pre-symptomatically by newborn screening, whether children present with symptoms uh, before being diagnosed, the long-term outcomes, we see the same incomplete penetrance and variable expressivity of, of pretty much all the long-term outcomes that, that your listeners are aware of. It is a mystery that has turned my hair gray over many decades. <laughs> why, why galactosemia? You said you're not a clinician. What was it that made you choose galactosemia as your research topics? Um, my training was really as a, a basic scientist. I did my PhD at MIT. I studied very fundamental things about biology. Um, before that, I was a biochemistry major as an undergrad at Princeton. I really was fortunate that while I was a postdoc, um, so I, I was at Harvard at the time, and I became interested in human genetics, and I started teaching um, human genetics. Uh, I was moonlighting, so I was teaching night classes. And I was co-teaching with a guy named Fred Bieber, who ran the cytogenetics lab at one of the Harvard hospitals at the time. Um, and he really nurtured my interest in human genetics and got me uh, interested enough that I joined a training program called the American Board of Medical. Now it's genetics and genomics. In those days, there wasn't genomics. It was just <laughs> ABMG. There was only one G. 
And so I, I also did that kind of nights and weekends. And the more I learned about medical genetics, the more I realized, oh my God, I, I really like this stuff. And, and they need people with basic science training doing this. And so I finished the training program and I'm now board certified. I don't run a clinical lab. I run a research lab, but I use, I guess, my, my interest in basic science, but in a more translational way. Um, galactosemia, you know, I don't, I don't have a family member with galactosemia. I don't have a, a personal connection. But when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my career, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to, to find some rare genetic disease where they know the cause, like, you know, they know what gene it is, but they really don't understand the mechanism and they don't have a good cure. I would love to try to put my career into trying to figure it out. And so here I am. Well, hopefully you're a little bit further along than you were when you started. I know that that's obviously been the topic of some of the work that you've published. I obviously, currently, we're advocating um, lifelong galactose restriction with many countries. They screen for lactosemia at birth. I know in some countries, when you've got high-risk populations, you'll start the children on galactose-free formula you know, right from the outset. We're monitoring galactose-1 phosphate levels. We're still seeing problems. In 2018, I think you took an untargeted metabolomics approach to trying to see just what it is that we are missing. How has that informed your practice? So I should say, I, I don't have a clinical practice, but I think what you mean is how has that informed my sort of the way I think about mechanism? And, and the answer is, you know, I was a biochem major in college and I know that you perturb anything, you know, that you've probably seen those big, you know, posters that are t-shirts that people make with all the metabolic pathways. Man, you, you know, you, you throw a pebble anywhere in that pond and the ripples go everywhere, right? So I always suspected that there were many things that were being perturbed and, you know, people were only following the galactose metabolites because those are kind of the closest to the, the enzyme that that's missing. But mechanism probably has to do with all those ripples with all those other pathways. And I am fortunate that I have a, a wonderful colleague at, at Emory named Dean Jones, who's in another department, but he runs a, an untargeted metabolomics approach. And, and I love talking science with him. He's a really smart guy. And uh, I was talking with him at one point um, years ago, actually, when he was first setting the metabolomics up. And, and he was like, Judy, you know, this is really powerful stuff. And if you've got a disease and you don't know the mechanism, this is really the way to do it. You know, I know that you guys in your department like to look at the genes, but I'm telling you, you got to look at the metabolites if you really want to understand what's going on. And it took me a, a few years to realize how correct he is. Uh, and so I was fortunate that I, I've been running a human subject study of galactosemia. It's basically a natural history, you know, observational study um, we have more than 500 patients enrolled now, and I get blood samples whenever they have a clinical blood draw. We send them an extra tube, and I, I get an extra tube for research. So I've got a freezer full. Um, and I figured, heck, let's look at the the plasma and and just see if there are differences between cases and controls. And and guess what? There are. <laughs> there are a lot. You know, it, it was sort of a an agnostic approach to to asking what are some of those other pathways that are perturbed now. The, the reason I have to kind of hem and haw and, and put some limitations here is that we were looking at plasma. Plasma 
is, is not where the problem is, right? I mean, the problem is in the brain and the problem is in the liver and the problem is in the ovaries. And I don't have samples of those things from, from patients. Now that we have a rat model, I do have those things from rats. And, and I will tell you that we are actually doing metabolomic work on, on those actual tissues now. We haven't published that yet, but that'll, that'll be coming down the pike when I have time to write it. And so it has informed my thinking because it basically said, yeah, we can, we may be measuring Gal1P or galactose or galactitol or whatever, but there are a whole lot of, of things that are different. And again, I, I know from the rats now that different things are happening in different tissues. And so it's not simple. It's not going to be simple at all. And you've talked obviously about the wide variety of areas in which we're seeing an impact from this disease. I suppose that brings us on to Jessica's paper because Jessica, you wrote about uh, fine motor control in galactosemia, which we know is an, uh, an issue. It's something certainly from a rather selfish perspective. I know that some of my patients are troubled by and I'm interested for your insights. I wonder if you could summarize um, how you assess these patients and what you found. I'd love to. So yeah, we were looking at hand fine motor control in both children and adults with classic galactosemia. And to do this, we used a software that um, we could put onto a tablet and we had each of our participants draw Archimedes spirals onto the tablet. And then we used those spirals to create two quantitative measures of fine motor control. The first one was what we called root mean square error, which is um, giving us information about how close to an ideal spiral each of these patients were able to draw. The second measure was a measure of kinetic tremor amplitude, um, and that being the amplitude of movement within a frequency range characteristic of an action tremor. And because you know healthy controls can also not draw a perfect spiral and they have a little bit of movement in their hand when drawing with an elevated elbow. Um, we use the controls as kind of our range of normal so that we could define what was abnormal based on our range of our controls. So we found that about 50% of the cases in our study did have at least like one spiral out of the four that we collected that were outside of a 95% confidence interval defined by our controls. And that was compared to a much smaller percentage in our controls around, I think, 10%. Um, and we also looked, you know, similarly with our tremor and found that 35% or so of our cases were significantly outside of this 95% normal range uh, compared to around 15% of uh, the controls. Um, so I feel like this was really informative in terms of how we can use a system that's efficient and easy for everyone to use in terms of quantifying hand fine motor control, but also um, in terms of using this for future research studies and quantifying progression of the outcome over time, this is going to be something that's very useful uh, moving forward. And when you talk about further work, you foresee people especially trialing, uh, you know, what drug therapies might be useful for, for hand control in this condition? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So quantifying that as an outcome variable and do we see improvements when we elicit some kind of intervention? I'm not sure if you have anything to add to that, Judy. So 
I guess I would add just a couple of things. The, the first one is that, I mean, people have, have done studies of motor control in galactosemia before. So we already knew that, that the population was gonna have a problem, but because most cohorts that are studied have been fairly small, the numbers balance around in terms of what fraction of the people having a, a problem with motor control, is it caused by tremor versus maybe something else? And there was also, I think, some uncertainty about whether this affected both children and adults or, or whether it was potentially you know, more common among adults, whether it might even be progressive. And so we, we were also able to ask questions about, about that. And we found that it affected kids as well as adults. And although our study design was cross-sectional, so it was not a longitudinal study. So we didn't test you know, the same person every, every five years for you know, a period of time. The, the older folks in the study did not show worse outcomes than, you know, this, the 40-year-olds the did not look worse than the 30-year-olds did not look worse than the 20-year-olds kind of thing. And so, it's not, what I was going to say, it's not a consistent feature of galactic, I mean, although it's a very commonly reported feature of galactic it's not a consistent feature. Is there any way of predicting which patients are going to have the issues and which aren't? <laughs> that, that is the in my generation, they would have said, that is the $64,000 question. I, I wish we knew because any intervention at this point, you know, problems, and, and we know this from interventions in other metabolic diseases, it is often a lot easier to prevent a problem than to reverse a problem. And so what that means is that when, when there are good interventions, they will probably be best applied to very young patients um, who may not yet even really, you know, if you apply it to a baby, you don't know if they're going to have a speech problem. They're, they're six months old. They're not talking yet. And so, you know, I, I wish, you know, this is one of the things that we're actually trying to lay some groundwork to eventually be able to, to figure out, are there markers that we could look at in a six month old to be able to say, this child's going to do great, you know, and I mean, in our study, we have people who are doing phenomenally well. We have, you know, we have someone who's a chemical engineer. We have someone who's a journalist. We have someone who's a, she's not hearing impaired, but she knows sign language and she's an interpreter for sign language. You know, we have some folks who are doing wonderfully. We have other folks who are really struggling on, on every parameter you could imagine. And, and most folks are somewhere in between. You know, any intervention is not going to be utterly risk-free. And therefore, it would be awfully nice if we could know who's going to do great anyway, and maybe they don't need the intervention, and, and who's really going to struggle, and, and maybe their risk-benefit ratio you know, justifies the, the intervention. I wish we had a perfect way of assessing that now. We don't. But that's part of what we're trying to do by you know, collecting longitudinal blood samples and following people over long periods of time so that we know who eventually does have problems with speech or motor or, or other aspects. And then we can go back to the, you know, the samples that we collected from them before those outcomes were apparent and do things like metabolomics or, you know, basically try to figure out, it's just pattern matching, try to figure out what's different about this group than that group. So that's a goal. I think we've seen, um, given the current COVID vaccine rollout that we're not always as good at assessing risk benefit ratios as we would like to be when you're yes. trying to determine who should have what and, and when. Yes. And, um, so you mentioned your rat model earlier and obviously you've, you're working on the sort of 
probing the, the metabolomics of, uh, of different tissues. In summer 2020, you reported on uh, gene therapy or some success with gene therapy in rats. I mean, that feels like kind of a big deal. We, we were certainly very excited. Yeah. I mean, that was a small study. We, we've actually done a, a larger study that we're writing up now. It, it was very exciting for us, both because uh, we were able to achieve metabolic correction, uh, both in blood and liver and in brain. So we were able to cross the blood-brain barrier with uh, uh, AAV9, which is a, a, actually a commonly used um, viral vector for gene therapy in, in human trials. And we were able to even uh, make impact on, on the cataracts. So we, we not only were able to give back enzyme activity and see really good metabolic correction, but we were able to see correction of a, of a phenotype, you know, cataracts. Now that pilot study, we harvested the animals two weeks after we injected them and we injected them as neonates. So they didn't get old enough for us to do things like test behavior or test adult outcomes. And so that's, that's what we've been working on now. So it, you know, it was a very small, very limited study. I will be the first person to say that study had all kinds of limitations. You know, we, we only injected seven rats, you know, seven pups, and we only carried it out for two weeks. But I will say what, you know, what I know now and what I, I hope we will publish in the near future is that it actually is uh, very promising and, you know, it's, it's not, it's not something that's going to be ready for patients tomorrow. There's going to be a long road, but I think that it is a very promising uh, option as, you know, as others have seen for, for other diseases where, where the same type of intervention is used. I think galactosemia will also benefit from this kind of intervention. So we've obviously talked about the, the difficulty of knowing which patients are going to get the greatest benefit from it, given that some of your patients on current dietetic approaches do exceptionally well. But this does sound like the first steps to a definitive treatment. Is that fair to say? Um, I think that there are a number of approaches ongoing. So, you know, there, there are many different approaches. Some are going to be pharmacologic. Some are going to be gene therapy. I think kind of like you, you mentioned with, the, you know, the COVID vaccine, you don't want all your eggs in one basket. At this point, we don't really know. It's possible that some treatments may end up being better for some groups of patients than, than for others. Uh, some treatments may be better at prevention and others may be better at treating patients who are, are already here and, and experiencing problems. So, you know, I, I really think that at this point, since we're all kind of wandering in the wilderness here, trying to, trying to figure out what is the, the best approach without having all the information we, we wish we could have about mechanism and predictors and so on. I really think that all possible avenues should be explored. And, and we, we all have the same goal, which is we want to make life better for, for people with galactosemia. And I think that gene therapy is, is one of the approaches that is, is likely to help there. I, I don't know that it's the only approach, but I think it's a good one. Thank you. Um, I would say, Jessica, you obviously, you did this project in, I think what Judy described off air as a, almost a gap year. Uh, it's probably need something slightly different in the UK that does in America, but um, you're now, I don't know why it was, did you, was it just happenstance that you ended up working with galactosemia or is there, is it something that you hope to continue to do after medical school? Yeah, I think in some ways it was happenstance. I think finding the mentorship and example that was set by Judy and the other members of her lab, I 
wanted to stay with them and learn from them and kind of develop that same amount of passion for research and the curiosity that comes with that. I think it's really developed me into the person that I am now and what I want to do with my career in terms of being like more of a physician scientist instead of purely a clinician. And that's definitely attributed to this lab and this research and everything that's gone on here. So um, I can just say that I'm very grateful for that. And hopefully, you know, I'll continue working with metabolic conditions, whether that be in genetics, in galactosemia, with pediatrics, I'm not sure. But um, I definitely know that galactosemia is very special to me. And um, the research I've done here has been nothing but a very rewarding experience, for sure. It's perhaps unfair to ask you in your first year of medical school to, to decide exactly what you're going to do now. Uh, Judy, I'd like to leave you with the last word. I mean, it does seem, um, as I look through the journal, that if there's a paper on galactosemia, then your name is somewhere in the, the author list generally at the end. But <laughs> we've obviously got this extended work on the rat trial to come, hopefully with us, but you know, we won't knock it if it's elsewhere. Um, but what else could we be looking forward to? Well, certainly a, a lot of work with the rats, some of it just descriptive, like metabolomics of the different tissues, some of it looking at intervention. And I think I mentioned a, a large observational sort of natural history study, and we've got a, a very large cohort and we are uh, actually going through and, and getting it better organized now. We've been very, very happy to, to look at, at specific types of outcomes. So you know, for instance, Jessica was looking at the hand fine motor control that was part of that study. We've looked at uh, quite a bit at ovarian function. We've looked at, at some scholastic outcomes, but, but there are a lot of things that we have not had really just the, the person power. You know, we're, we're a small team. We're a mom and pop shop kind of um, <laughs> lab. We, we run, you know, it's a, a, a small number of us and, and then usually a, a team of undergraduates. And we're, we're finally at a, at a point where we can start looking at some bigger questions like, are there, are there any connections? Are patients who have problems in one area also more likely to have them in other areas? Again, um, these are not novel questions, but you need a really big cohort to be able to, to ask these questions well. I hope at some point to really be able to use the combination of our animal model work and our our human subjects observational work to make sure that what we're seeing in the rats uh, is actually relevant to people. You know, we, we use we use them kind of, you know, you generate a hypothesis in, in one in in one area, but then you need to test it in the other one to make sure that that what you're, you know, what you're looking at is is relevant to humans. I really think we need to understand more about the timing, the progression of the outcomes so that appropriate clinical trials can be designed so that we know you know, how many children need to be in the trial and uh, when do you need to start and, and how will you know if you've made a difference? So as I mentioned before, I really want to know what, what are predictors, what are accurate predictors that could be used to, to know early on uh, which child is more likely to have what kinds of long-term problems so that appropriate risk-benefit decisions could be made by, by the families and, and their, their healthcare providers. So We've got a lot to do. Um, we have to pick and choose what we do because again, we're, we're a small team, but I just would like to end by saying I feel particularly privileged. I've, 
through the course of my career, I have had the, the privilege really of working with a lot of families who, who have loved ones with galactosemia. And they are just an amazing community of people. Um, I feel like I'm a, a better person and I definitely am a better parent because of, of interacting with those families. And uh, I really just want to say that, you know, we, we may be taking care of the rats or, or, or handling the pipettes, but it's really a team effort. We couldn't do anything without the involvement and just the, the commitment of large numbers of families, some of whom are dealing with, with some real serious struggles. And yet they are just amazingly you know, involved and helpful. And it's really been a, a, a joy and a privilege. And I look forward to, to continuing to work with them to, to try to make a difference. Oh, well, I think we're all continually inspired by the families that we look after and the, the wonderful patients that we care for. Uh, thank you. That's. Uh, I hope you, you'll want to come back and, and do this again when you've got more to kind of tell us about. Sure. Them, Obviously, if you would like to read more about both the, the rat study and the study around fine motor control, do go to the general website and search for galactosemia and either high motor control or gout gene therapy. Um, and once you find uh, Professor Fridovich Kyle's name, if you click on that, you'll find a, a, a plethora of papers on galactosemia to, to look through at your heart's content. Um, Jessica and Judy, thank you again for your time. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank and thank you for listening and goodbye.